Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are with none other than Annie Duke, co-hosted by Brian Portnoy. And um, guys, thank you so much for coming. We are really excited for this episode. So, um, you know, can't wait to get started. Mike, uh, why don't you go through your spiel? You got it. Yeah. Just to make sure everyone is aware that uh, nothing on this podcast or video is anything to do with investment advice. And please get that from qualified professionals, not like the four scallywags on this particular show at the moment. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, please feel free and encouraged to hit the like button, share, make comments, and uh, actively participate as we go along. And with that, let's roll. Yeah. So um, to get started, maybe Annie, I'm sure you need no introduction, but I think it'd be great just to frame the conversation to um, give us a little bit about your background, maybe your academic and your your uh, other colorful background in the poker sphere. And um, tell us some of the common themes of the books that you've written and um, then maybe tease us with a new manuscript that is on the table. Okay, well, I think the last part will come up organically. So I'll I'll table that because the other stuff takes a little bit because I'm not someone who's only done one thing in my life. So it takes a second. Um, Yeah. So uh, I'll start with after college. (laughs) I won't start with Sounds elementary good. school. I went to elementary school in Concord, New Hampshire. Um, so after college, I my plan was to be, become a professor. Uh, I went to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania. I did five years there uh, studying under Lila Gleitman and Henry Gleitman. Um, generally, I, w- I was basically studying learning, uh, in particular first language acquisition, but 
it was broadly a cognitive science program. So you were studying a, across all anything that would be encompassed by cognitive science would include judgment, decision making, uh, learning under uncertainty, which is more the part that I was in, um, perception, that kind of thing. So uh, it was a budding science at that point, this this sort of interdisciplinary approach to behavior. Um, did five years there, was on my way to be a professor, had no plans to do anything else. But right at the end, I actually just got sick. I had an illness um, where I had to delay all of my job talks for a year in order to recuperate and uh, just physically wasn't feeling great. So um, went during my time off, I, I was sort of constrained in my choices because like, I didn't want to reboot a new career, like another career or something because I was I already had one. I was going to be a professor. Um, I needed something that was really flexible in the hours because physically I just didn't feel well. Um, uh, so it was like, okay, I'm going to do something that's kind of not permanent, that's going to give me some flexibility. And so I played poker. And I think that um, given kind of what's happened over the last 20 or so years with poker being all over television and obviously internet poker was a big thing for a while, uh, I don't think that sounds quite as weird and unusual as it actually was. Uh, because when I made this decision, it was in the 90s, and there was no poker on television, and it wasn't on the internet, and uh, poker was generally sort of grouped with um, craps, I guess. Um, so uh, essentially, like when I told people, well, I'm playing poker, they'd be like, are you going to Gamblers Anonymous? Um, so <laughs> this idea that you could actually, you know, generate a positive expected value in, by playing poker was kind of an unknown thing at the time. And the only reason why I actually happened to end up doing it was because my brother had done it before me. So he had gone off to New York and studied, uh, was studying with a grandmaster in chess and um, had deferred college for a year. And he, I think he sort of ended up going for maybe six months or something, but he, he took him a long time to get back to it. And he never did finish because he became very successful at poker. I found he found poker much more interesting than chess. So he had been playing poker for about 10 years before this happened. And he was the one who actually suggested, why don't you do this in the meantime? And so I did it in the meantime. And when I sat down, it was a little like that. Aha, like, oh, everything I was studying here, it is at this table in in this way that's decision making under uncertainty and learning and how do you close these feedback loops when there's luck and hidden information and um, all the things that I've been studying about like judgment and decision making and bias and how do you actually solve for that in in this situation where it's so incredibly high stakes and high speed so I just you know I sort of didn't go back I just kind of didn't go back is the way that I would describe it um, and I ended up uh, playing poker exclusively for about eight years. And then right in the early 2000s, I got asked by a group of uh, a hedge fund actually to come speak to their options traders. Um, and they were wanted me to just come talk to them about how poker might inform uh, the way that they thought about risk. And I actually ended up talking to them about how decision making under uncertainty can um, distort your risk attitudes in a very negative way. That was what I ended up talking to them about. Um, and I just remember like in that moment, by the way, I was nine months pregnant when I gave that talk. I, I could, I was barefoot because my feet were so swollen. So I couldn't swollen. really do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it was kind of in that moment where I realized like, oh, there were a lot of things that I really loved about academics, right? Like I really love this idea of like synthesizing information and trying to figure out what does it mean and how would you use it? And, um, and I love teaching. 
And I kind of remembered that at that moment and um, just kind of continued doing that and developed a consulting business and a speaking business that I overlapped with the poker for about 10 years. And then in 2012, I retired from poker completely and um, had really had in mind that I wanted to write this book, Thinking in Books, that I had already written some books about how to play poker, specifically from a decision-making framework. So you can think about that as kind of the mirror image of what I was doing in my business life at that point. Um, but I really wanted to write Thinking in Bats, which it wasn't called at that time. My editor, Nikki Papadopoulos, shout out, um, came up with that title, which was so great. Um, and so I started working on the proposal and, you know, published it in 2018. I was very lucky for it to be a bestseller, followed it with How to Decide. Um, I now do lots and lots of consulting, but to take, uh, if I'm going to do business consulting with you, it needs to be a long-term relationship because I discovered I, I don't like things that are kind of surfacy. So uh, I do two things. I'll give a talk for like an hour um, or I'll actually like live in your organization for a while. Um, and I like, I don't like like the two day training thing. I, I don't think that I'm, I don't think it's my sweet spot. I think it's other people's sweet spot. Um, so I just don't like to do things that aren't in my sweet spot. So now that's kind of what I do. And then on the side, I ended up back at the university of Pennsylvania and I'm a visiting scholar there. I work in Phil Tetlock's lab. Um, who wrote Super Forecasting for those people who I'm sure everybody's familiar with him. And uh, I actually do research on forecasting, specifically counterfactual forecasting. And um, now I'm buttoning up that PhD that I didn't get because I went off for a life of vice and dereliction <laughs> to go play poker. So that's got to be um, a sweet spot oh. on the resume. <laughs> right. Ten years yeah, professional definitely. vice poker player. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Like <laughs> derelict. Derelict. Exactly. <laughs> right. Ne'er do well. Mm -hmm. I was or, curious or about whether you degenerate. That's what you say. You're such a degenerate. <laughs> no doubt. I might have been there. Um, when you when you went to play poker and you said you sort of you recognized that you were bringing to bear um, a lot of the formal topics that you had been working on academically. When you were first started playing poker and as you as you climbed the learning curve, were you actually trying to apply those formal concepts to the game? Was that a was that a conscious way you were thinking about or how to how to approach the game? Or did you did you find that there were a lot of natural, sort of instinctive behaviors that you brought to bear? Like how how do you reconcile those two um sides of your yeah. game? That's such a good question. So I I wouldn't say that I started thinking about it like in this super explicit way until I started working on that as as part of my career in 2002, right? When when I got asked to speak to that group of group of options traders, that's when like I really was thinking about it and, and what's this kind of formal relationship between these two things that I've been doing. That being said, when I look back on what I was doing in poker, it's really just applied, right? So uh, there's certain like I always had very strict loss limits. That's something that would be completely applied from what I was doing in cognitive science, as an example. Um, I was really actually really obsessed with the resulting problem. I uh, used to talk about it all the time and try to figure out with my peer group how, how are we supposed to avoid this? And obviously that's outcome bias. Um, really just trying to deal with it. And then, you know, I had done so much work thinking about these noisy systems and, and how are you supposed to actually extract signal from these noisy systems from a learning standpoint and, and poker is just such a noisy system. So 
in retrospect, like I wish that I had been thinking about it more, more explicitly from the start. But when I look back on it, it's like I was clearly, I was, I, I clearly was thinking about it. It probably wasn't, um, it probably didn't have the fidelity it would have had I been thinking about it more explicitly. And I will say that the quality of my game did take a jump when I started to be much more explicit about thinking about the way that those two things related to each other. And did you find that um, the best of the best that you played with had sort of a natural instinct for those mental models already, even if they weren't explicitly doing decision journals at the at the poker table, they just sort of got it? I mean, I know you've played with some of the, yeah. the world's best. So, Brian, it, it, it's interesting. It depends a little bit on what you mean by the best of the best. And I imagine that you can think about this in the, it's, it's, I think it's very similar in the investment world as well. So there's, there's kind of a difference between someone who is really good at a very particular form of poker. So we could think about, there, there's kind of broad strokes, right? Are you in a tournament or are you in a cash game? And that division would create very different behaviors from your opponents. And, and that's very different strategies and tactics that you might apply in order to be good in those two different environments, because the environments are, are clearly have a lot, you know, in one case, you have, you will basically have this, the, the finiteness of your resources is really in your face in a tournament in the way, in a way that's not in a cash game. Um, and then even within those environments, you have different games, right? You have, you have stud games and draw games, you have flop games, you, you know, you, there's different number of cards that you get in each of those, um, and so those also create a lot of different choices. So there's basically sort of broadly two types of poker players. They're the ones who just got really good at a thing, right? So maybe there's somebody who's just amazing at smaller buy-in, large field, no limit hold'em tournaments. And they're just great at it, right? And then there are players who basically you could invent a new game, tell them about it. They could sit down at the table with people who had played that game already before and they would beat them mm. because they just have this very deep conceptual understanding of why are the reasons that I do things in different environments, right? What, how is the environment affecting the types of choices that I make so that if you tell me about a new game, I have those mental models to figure out like, well, how easy is it to make a hand? How bluffable are my opponents? How much are they going to feel the pressure of going broke? Whatever those things might be, they just get it at that super deep conceptual level. So like in that category would be somebody like Phil Ivey, right? Like you guys could have been, you could invent a game that you've been playing for weeks, teach him the rules and he would eat your lunch. <laughs> I've never played it. So that's what I mean by it's a little bit different. Like it depends on what you mean by great. Yeah. Right. But if you're great in the second category, yes, you, you, you are you have all of those mental models. You're thinking about that stuff all the time. And how do I sort of think about what the reference class for this for this particular game that I'm in is? And what does that mean for the way that people are behave? And how can I see it from my opponent's perspective and all yeah. that? And then in the first case, you're just like betting here works. Yeah, you made me think of how Tetlock uses the foxes versus hedgehog analogy. That, that's, that's a very good way yeah, to think about it. And and so here here's an example actually on the fox versus hedgehog. It, so the big idea in tournaments is that aggression is very good. 
And there's a reason why aggression is very good in tournaments, because when people feel their death is impending, meaning I've got a limited number of chips and I do not want to lose all of them because I will have to leave. Um, then it, you can imagine it's, it's much easier to push somebody around, right? So aggression is going to get rewarded in that environment where someone can feel their impending doom. But in a cash game, okay, well, if I lose my chips, whatever, I can buy more, right? It's not always the case. Like some people are very risk averse, but they're, but even the most risk averse person is going to tend to be more risk averse in a tournament than they are in a cash game where you can renew your resources, right? So so some people who are just great at tournaments just have this big idea. I'm just going to push people around. Aggression is good. And what happens is when you stick them over in a cash game, they lose all their money because they're still trying to push everybody around. And everybody's like, hey, I can just rebuy. I call. Right. And, and they don't really know how to adjust. So that I think that it, I think that framework of foxes versus hedgehogs is like a very good framework to think about the difference between those two things. And what we know out in real life is that hedgehogs can be very successful. If you have the right big idea at the right time, you can do really well. Right. Can it is be there... taught? Can that um, idea of cognitive flexibility or cognitive adaptivity be taught? Or I mean, you, the way you speak of it it seems like this is something you're sort of genetically predisposed to, right? You just have a, a, this predisposition towards conceptual or cognitive flexibility um, or you don't, right? But is, is there something that, that you can do to practice or to build or improve on that skill set? So I, I think the answer is probably, so, so the answer is yes. Um, you know, I mean, this is kind of what I'm doing in, in the work that I'm doing with Phil, Phil Tetlock. Like, can you train people to be better forecasters? And forecasters, obviously, that, that requires kind of getting out of the moment into the future and trying to see things from different perspectives. And the answer is you can. Um, but what we have to understand is that it's it's incremental improvements, right? Like, uh you can sort of teach people what the value of this stuff is. And some people are going to respond to it more than others. But the way, the way that I try to think about it is everybody has some sort of distribution of like their worst decision to their best decision. You know, it's like normally distributed. And are you ever going to take the best decision maker in the world and the worst decision maker in the world and get the worst decision maker to look like the best decision maker? Well, probably not. No, let's just say no. But that's okay because what really matters is for that person who's the worst decision maker, can you make them a little bit better? Because if you make them a little bit better, sort of churning across all the decisions that they ever make in their life, that's going to actually have a huge impact on their lives. So, you know, I think that, that you, you know, I would sort of just reframe it, right? Which is not, can you turn a hedgehog into a fox, right? But can you make a hedgehog be a little bit more fox-like? And so I think the answer is yes, you can. But the other answer is you can create decision making environments that kind of force that on them. And then you can start to get like then you can start to get a lot higher quality decisions out of people that way. So it's it's a function of maybe two dimensions. One is a, a level of natural ability and then the next is trainability. Yeah. And so for the optimal outcome, you'd want very high natural ability with a person who has a high trainability, which would lead to a, a, a likely very high outcome of efficacy in that 
for that. that. That's true. And also those things would be super correlated. If you have a lot of natural ability, you're going to be much more trainable. You know, I mean, here, here's an interesting thing. Are you, are you, are you guys um, familiar with the cognitive reflection test? I'm not. So I uh, you might have seen these questions like a bat and a ball cost $10. Oh yeah. 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 The, it's a nickel. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that yeah, bat and ball cost a dollar ten. Sorry. It's a nickel. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth a nickel. All right, well, here's what happens. I'll tell them now that you've given the answer away. Yeah. Thanks. Talk about resulting. Yeah. So a bat and a, so here's one of the questions. A bat and a ball cost a dollar ten. The ball is a dollar more than the bat. I mean, sorry, the bat is a dollar more than a ball. How much does the ball cost? And everybody says ten cents. So um, it doesn't cost 10 cents because a dollar minus 10 cents is obviously 90 cents, not a dollar. But what people do is just kind of this, you know, it's like a very thinking fast and slow kind of thing. Like system one says it's a dollar more. So what's a dollar 10 minus a dollar? And you come out with 10 cents. Um, so you can, there's a variety of these questions. There's, there's another one, which is a, a, there's a pond with lily pads in it and the, the lily pads double. Um, every day on the uh, 49th day, the whole pond is filled. On what day is the pond half filled? And people divide it in one. half, but the answer is 48, right? Because it's doubling every day, right? So I gave that one away too. And then uh, there's another one, which is like, um, it's something like uh, a machine, one machine takes one, uh, one machine takes two minutes to create two widgets. Um, if you have a hundred machines making 200 widgets, how many minutes will it take? And the answer of course is two, but so anyway, there's all these things where it, you sort of end up at the wrong answer. So what they've shown is, so this is actually a, one of the most predictive tests for your decision-making skill, it turns out, uh, cause it has to do with sort of open-mindedness and how much are you stopping and thinking, how much is system one taking you down a path or, you know, are you checking your work? Um, and just to give you a sense, you know, these questions are quite hard. So I think if you take kind of like a state school, people get sort of less than one right on average. And if you take MIT, they're still only getting a little over two right. Okay, so even like people at MIT do not get three right on average. So here's the, here's the interesting thing about it, why I think these things are correlated. Failing the CRT is also highly correlated with belief in conspiracy theories. And there's an interesting twist on the CRT, which is pretty fun. So let's say that um, I ask you the bat and ball question and you say 10 cents. And I say to you, actually, that's not wrong. That's not right. Do you want to try again? Now we can further divide people up into people who go back and try again. They may or may not get the right answer, but they try again. And people who say, no, I'm right. And the people who say, no, it's not wrong. You lie. <laughs> it is 10 cents. I figured it out. They're the most likely to believe in conspiracy theories. So I think this is what I mean by like, the, these things are correlated because what the CRT is getting at is this open-mindedness. It's this ability to sort of check your work and think and what am I, you know, am I wrong? If I were wrong, how would I be wrong? Those kinds of questions that I think are so incredibly important to great decision-making. And that's why I think it's so predictive of decision-making capability and particularly these, these things that have to, where decision-making really goes south. But they reflect two different pathways, right? I, I think so. So, 
sort of the first the first level there in the what is it called the CRT test? The cognitive reflection test. Reflection yeah. test. Yeah, the CRT. It was so developed first... by a, per- a guy named Shane Shane Frederick over at Princeton, who's quite a character. You know, he was okay. a graduate student of uh, Richard Thaler's, I believe. Oh, okay, makes sense. Um, so the first level is how much, yeah, like you say, sort of how much level one versus level two um, inclination you have in in your in the way you make decisions, I guess, and then when you when you tell them the answer then it's it's more of a how to what degree or extent does what you say um how strongly you've you've internalized the value of what of what you said in terms of like what it means to your to your sense of self or your ego or or whatever right it's like it's like writing yeah. something down it's like writing a goal down yeah. versus you know it's like how how invested are you in this in this answer and and how much does that mean to you is that well i think it has i think it's a little bit has to do with overconfidence there's definitely like some dunning kruger in there um uh, ability to see something from somebody else's side um you know sort of sort of like how trapped in the inside view are you uh, and then there's you know naive realism the thing i believe is true and anybody else who believes otherwise is wrong Um, so I don't think that this particular thing has to do with like external validity. Like what will people think of me? I mean, I think they really believe that they have the right answer. Okay. But they they just can't, it's like very, it's very hedgehoggy, right? They, they just can't say, well, why would this person be telling me that I'm wrong? Or is there another way that I could think about this problem or let me go back and do the math? You know, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, which obviously, if you think about like conspiracy theories, like they're not doing the math. You know, it's not they're 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 like, okay, so I'm saying that there are three million people who have kept a secret. And not one of them has ever let it slip. (laughs) Right. It it doesn't. There was no moon landing. Think about how many people (laughs) would have to be keeping that one a secret. Mm -hmm. Like it's. You know, I mean, there's just stuff like that. And then there's just like illogic, right? Like um, vaccines, as far as I can tell, will both kill you. But also we shouldn't be giving them to any other countries because they should just be us for us to cure us. And it's like, but okay, you just said they were going to kill you, but they're also going to kill. They're going to cure you at the same time. Like that doesn't that doesn't jibe. You know what I mean? Like there's so many things like that where you where you go in and from the outside looking in, you can say this completely doesn't make sense. But it's a little bit like trying to tell someone, but a dollar minus 10 cents is 90 cents. Right. And they're like, shut up. <laughs> so how do you how do you enlighten that that person? How do you bring them along the trainability dimension? That's, you know, it's such a good question. So, I mean, there's a few things. I said there, I said some things about like create a really good decision and making environment for people. That, that's always really helpful. Part of that has to do with like discover information, not in a group setting so that you can actually see the perspectives of other people and get their rationales. I mean, there, there's like a very famous question where you can see this happening, where it's actually a little bit difficult. Um, I, I'm sorry, we're getting down in the weeds on, on this stuff, but I'll, I'll, I think this explains sort of why it's really important. To we love this. the weeds. We, we, Please yeah, keep we going. Like weeds. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. 
So a, a woman comes into a jewelry store and buys a necklace, but she doesn't have cash. So she uh, gives the storekeeper, the jewelry store owner, a $100 check. He happens not to have any change lying around. So he goes to the, to the, the storefront next door and he gives the storefront next door person a $100 check. And that, that person gives him $100 in change. Now he comes back and he gives the woman the 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 necklace was $78. He gives her $22 in change. Okay. The necklace cost his cost for the necklace was $39. And now later on, he finds out that the check was counterfeit and he needs to give the person next door $100, which he does. So the question is how much money did he lose? Do you want me to take a moment like I can stop and not just give the answer? I think it's uh, $61. Does anybody else have a different answer? I think he lost $100. Or sorry, not 61. Uh, oh, was it $100? <laughs> well, he we lost the value of the necklace and the $100. Oh, and so the $139. $139. <laughs> $139. Yep. Good call. Okay. What do you think, Brian? I, I was going to say 139 Okay, so this is why we never discuss anything in a group. <laughs> okay, so the answer is $61. Damn it. <laughs> you know, Adam's always the smartest again. guy in the room, and I should just <laughs> trust my instinct. All right, yes. Like okay. I said, and I'll tell you why. He got $100 from the person next door and gave him $100 back. So that's right. zero. So we don't care about that. The necklace cost was $39 and he gave her $22 and change. So it's 39 plus 22 is 61. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's the thing. Imagine this is how we get these great decision-making environments. Instead of having that discussion like this, each of you had gone and done the math yourself. So you had written it out. So when you said 61, you would have put, you would have said all the stuff that I just said, and you would have said your thing for $139 and we did it all separately. And then we came back and we just got to look at everybody's answers. And then I could say, well, how, hold on. How come you think this? And we're just much more likely to get a better answer, number one. And number two, we get exposed to the fact that people do have actually a different point of view. And we get to get their rationale on it. So that's one of actually the best ways that you can train this kind of thinking is just allow people to get the maximum exposure to other people's points of view and their rationale for those points of view so that you can understand there are different ways to come at something. And now for this, there's actually literally a right answer. But for a lot of things, there's, you know, a matter of subjective judgment, right? We could have a model of the market and both of us could recommend different things. And we just want to get those perspectives so that we can see that our perspective isn't the only one. And that's actually both one of the best ways to improve decision making, number one, but also one of the best ways to train really good decision making where you start to learn to want to know how other, somebody else views the situation. Because you have enough times where you walk in the room and you're like, I think it's 139. And then you see the math from somebody else and you go, hold on, it's 61. Right. And I then you're like, about, oh, you know what? I'm not always right. I ought to listen to other people. It, it reminds me of the, you know, sort of the jelly bean experiment too, where guesses are kept separate from one another and distinct right. and don't influence one another. Whereas if you do that in a group setting, all of a sudden, whoever goes first sets sort anchors of a, it. Anchors Everything it. Everything is yeah. like, is it, you know, you say it's a hundred and everybody's trying to figure out if it's more or less than a hundred. Mm. 
Whereas if you said a thousand, everybody would figure out if it was more or less than a thousand and you would see that you get a spread. So yeah, so this is a way to actually use the wisdom of a crowd for complex decisions that don't just have to do with like how many jelly beans are in a jar, but who should we hire? Mm-hmm. Where you can see that people look at things in, in a different way. There's, a, there's another interesting piece of that, just by the way, just on noise reduction, um, which is in Kahneman's new book, um, which is you can use an inner crowd. So one of the things you can do is write down your guess from a week ago and then guess again a week later, and you'll see that those are often different. <laughs> and it turns out if you take an average of those, you're more accurate than either guess on its own. It's called the inner crowd. You get to use the inner crowd. But that also teaches you that like I d- think different things on different days. That is remarkable. Wow. So I guess it's, so your memory of the thought process that you brought to bear several days ago is weak enough that when you come back to it, you, you'll use a different process or you'll place different weight on the information that you, that you have at your disposal or what have you. And ensembling with yourself is, is effective. It's actually really effective. And it's kind of to to take what you said more broadly, our memories period are pretty bad. So, I mean, that's kind of the whole thing with hindsight bias, right? It's like, you're looking back on something and your ability to reconstruct your state of knowledge at the time is terrible. You know, your ability to not mix in things that you found out afterwards into things that you knew beforehand is terrible when we reconstruct conversations we have had with someone, we reconstruct them in a way that fits a narrative that we care about and we don't even know we're doing it. Where our memories are just very bad because we don't have a search function that's like a computer where it's sort of date and timestamp somewhere and it just gets retrieved as the data artifact. I mean, our memories are very contextually driven. And so context matters and we create context all the time. And sometimes that context is just previous beliefs that we have that we're trying to support. Sometimes it's like just what time of day is it or is there a mood or something like that that can cause you to have different guesses or what were you just anchored to? So when you're looking at the jelly bean jar and you guessed last week and you guessed today, you may come up with different answers just because like you just saw something with a bunch of stuff in it right? or whatever. Yeah. Like we're just, we're, you know, we're cognitively just kind of like pushed around all the time. So once we know that, you know, then the inner crowd becomes not so insane. But, you know, obviously you need to know that. Otherwise you would be like, why would guessing at two different times help me? And it's because you're, well, your guesses are going to be different and they're both inaccurate in different kinds of ways. So if you yeah. average across them, yeah. you do in sort of in the same way that if the two of us guess, you know, or the four of us all guess, we would be inaccurate in different ways. And if we took the average, we would generally do better than any of the single guesses. Where does that fall in the in the book, How We Decide, which is just an exceptional set of tools that you propose for everyone to use? And I'm trying to figure out, does that reside sort of in the in the knowledge tracker or is that more the um, where, where is that covered in, in the sets of tools in that book? Because they're, they're so, really yeah. good. So I. So I don't, it's not in how we decide, because that's written by Jonah Lehrer. Um, it's oh. in how to, how to decide, which how is written to by decide. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all yeah. good. It's all good. Dude, that's your third yellow flag, man. I don't. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, he gave away the answer. Yeah. There was one, too, the, the, before. He convinced the, the, you the that 139 was correct. That's right. Persuasive. 
That's it. Um, yeah. My, okay. Mike's going to disappear through the floor. Right. <laughs> well, I, I also learned that if you say something with lots of confidence in that book, that you can persuade other people of a wrong answer. So I was just seeing if that is. That is so true. true. <laughs> um, he got me. So this, this actually fits into a few places. I mean, obviously, the, the not so just so that for people who aren't familiar, the knowledge tracker is is meant to be um, a way to look back on decisions and be better at reconstructing what your state of knowledge is. So essentially, the, the biggest problem that happens with reconstructions is that we get memory creep. In other words, like we learn a whole bunch of stuff after the fact and we start to, that sort of starts to creep into our memory of what we knew beforehand. Um, you know, and like I, the simplest example of that would be like, uh, you're thinking about taking a job, you ask my advice, I, I tell you all sorts of things, you know, which are like, it seems like a pretty good opportunity. It seems pretty close to this other opportunity that you're already in or this other one that you're thinking about and you know, whatever, but nowhere in there do I say, you should never take this job. It's going to be a nightmare. The toxic, the culture is going to be toxic and whatever. And you go and you take the job and it's a nightmare and the culture is top, toxic. And we have dinner later and I say, I told you so. I knew it was going to be bad. And you're like, I don't, I don't remember that, but okay. So, um, so this is kind of what happens to us. So, so the knowledge tracker is basically saying, look, you have to think, what did I find out after the fact? And I can, you know, you're trying to create that timestamp. What did, what did I find out after the fact? What did I know before the fact? And given the knowledge that I actually had before the fact, what, what is the quality of that decision given that knowledge, right? So, so as an example, like, you know, the thing I opened thinking in bets with, Pete Carroll in the Super Bowl, he, he has no knowledge whatsoever that Bill Belichick has been practicing a play that would uh, be a play where you might intercept the ball in that particular situation. Why do we know he didn't know that? Because Bill Belichick had never, ever run that play. There's no tape. There's nothing. He does. He's never seen the formation. There's no reason that he would ever know that. And yet what people will tell me is, well, you're wrong that Pete Carroll made a good decision because Bill Belichick had been practicing this play. And it's like, well, this is why you need a knowledge tracker. Right. Because could did Pete Carroll know that before he'd ever, you know, now? Yeah. If if you fall for it a second time, you know, that's like fool me once, <laughs> fool me twice. OK, so so this is helping you do that. But what I point out is that but the thing is that you can do this knowledge tracking. But if you actually record your knowledge before you actually enter into the decision, that's actually, first of all, going to improve the quality of the decision. But second of all, it's going to help with this retrospective look back. Because you're not going to have to sort of reconstruct something. You're actually going to have a record of it. That's where this kind of thing comes in place. Because if we all take time to write down how much do we think that that jewelry store owner lost, owner lost right? And we all take time to write down what's the math, you know, what were we thinking, so on and so forth. Um, and now we have a record of what we all thought. Maybe we all decide from that we're more likely to actually figure out it's $61. But even if we don't, and we all come out of our group and we, we, poor you, we convince you that it's 139 and we come out and then someone says, you know, 139 is wrong. It's actually 61. We can now go look back and we can say, well, what did we know? What was the math? What did we get wrong? Where was the error? Because we actually have it written down somewhere. So that, that's where it sort of plays together. It's a way to make it so that you don't have to reconstruct it. So yeah, what I mean, you, you don't misreconstruct it too, right? Misremember exactly. the facts. Go, sorry. No, no, it's good. It's just this sort of dovetails into something that we talk about a lot um, 
in, in terms of decision making, which is, I mean, Mike and I and, and all, all of the partners and many people, we're all big fans of your work, but just like decision theory in general and metacognition. And we're always trying to figure out how can we just make better decisions independently as a team, et cetera. But, you know, and we're all familiar with the literature and, and we've read all the books and, and, and we've followed a lot of the protocols. And what we've discovered is that and this is well documented too, right? Like you can know all of the rules, you can know and internalize the reality of all of these biases. Um, but when it comes time to make decisions and reflect on them, knowing them does not make you invulnerable to them, right? So what are some of the the metacognitive hacks? that? Because a lot of the, like you've written, some great books, you know, Kahneman's written some great books, Tetlock's written some great books, and a lot of them sort of describe Don't the path the to- Don't put with Kahneman and Tetlock. Like, I've written some I just did, man. Books, you're in there. Forget it. <laughs> Forget it. You're there. So, the, but the bigger question is, or a, a, another question is, how do you make these things work even though we know that when we know about them, they still- they're still not guaranteed to work, right? And it yeah. seems like, and you just described one of those, which is document, right? But but what are some of those, what are some of the other sort of tricks or hacks or tools that you can bring to bear to ensure that the knowledge, that what we learn about how we think is meaningful in in how we operate going forward rather than just being something that we know becomes becomes meaningful in the decisions we make and, and the lives we live. Yeah. So, uh, so let me just say a few things. One, one is in all sorts of ways, knowing about a bias doesn't help. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, most people are familiar with the sunk cost bias, sunk cost fallacy. So that's just like, uh, here's an example. This, this is actually out of my new book. Um, so, uh, I tell you, hey, there's this, Brian, what's your favorite band? Let's just say U2. Okay. There you go. I have um, a rock band. Don't ever drag me to a U2 concert, please. Um, <laughs> wow. I'm joking. I mean, I'm not, I'm joking, but also I don't like U2. Um, <laughs> sorry, like, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> okay. But I'll, I'll be over at the Jack White concert. And you'll be at the U2 concert. But anyway, so U2. Okay. Enjoy. So so U2 is is doing an outdoor concert. Um, and I say to you, hey, do you want to go to this outdoor concert that U2 is doing? And you look up and the weather is going to be freezing cold and rainy. So you know you're going to go to this outdoor concert. You're going to be standing around in the freezing cold and rain to watch them. And... Under those circumstances, most people will say, I'll take a pass, mm-hmm. right? Even though I'm offering it to you for free, I'm saying, oh, I've got this extra ticket. Do you want to go? And you're like, no, it's going to be like 32 degrees and ice cold rain in the middle of June for some freak weather experience. I, I have no interest in standing around. I'll listen to the album. Hmm. Um, but now imagine that you bought a ticket that's non-refundable for $100, so it's it's non-refundable, right? Like you already bought the ticket and it's the exact same situation and you have a choice about whether to go and stand in the cold and rain and it's going to be gross and freezing to go watch you too. And pretty much 100% of the people are like 
yeah, <laughs> I'm obviously going to go. And you're like, okay, but you already have a stated preference that you don't want to go. And they said, but I don't want to lose the money in my ticket. Right. But okay, you already lost it. So that's like very simple sunk cost fallacy, right? So so whatever your preference is, if you wouldn't go if it were free, you shouldn't go just because you have a non-refundable ticket. For for I, the record, for the record, I I would have not gone and I would have eaten the hundred dollars. Good. Yeah. Yes. Excellent work. Because no, you you are the guy offering the other guy the free ticket. That's right. I'm <laughs> just saying it. I, I'm said, Mike. I'm actually emailing you and saying, do you want my <laughs> yeah. ticket? Do you want to go? Mike would totally go. Micro on a farm, dude. Nothing wasted. So okay, so that, but that, but most people, obviously, most people are going. Um, but you know, I can make it much less obvious, and I could say, well, it's just going to be like fifty-eight degrees and kind of windy and yucky, and you know, whatever. Like that, but most people are going to go in that situation, and this obviously causes a whole lot of problems that have to do with um, uh, projects that are going on too long, or like there's big public works projects where this becomes a problem because money's already been spent, and so they continue even though it's going poorly. And um, so this is what people tell me. This is like the, if I had a penny for every time someone has said this to me, I would be rich. Oh, I, I know about sunk costs and I actually don't do it. Um, why? Well, because this is what I do. When I'm approaching the decision, I say, if this were a new decision, would I make it? So you could imagine this with a stock, right? You're trying to decide whether to hold a position or not. And you say, well, if I had to buy this today, would I buy it? Um, and that, that so we, we think, oh, okay, I found a great hack. It will work. Um, just so you know, that works not at all, like zero. It has no effect. Um, but the problem is that because we think we've discovered something, like, oh, I understand something about sunk costs. The error is that people treat uh, decisions in which they already have resources sunk um, into it differently than new decisions. So I know that, uh, and I'm a genius, and I've come up with this fresh way to deal with it, which is to imagine am I if I were making the decision today, would I do it? And so they think that they fixed it and they haven't. And then that's a really bad combination, something that has remained unfixed, but that you have high confidence that you did fix. Okay, so this is just to say we're, when we're in it, when we're in the moment of decision, we're really bad. So there's two ways that we can actually actually help this because our intuitions around this stuff are, is so bad that if we know it, we'll fix it. One is to do it in advance. That's one way to do it. So I could say... What would the weather have to look like for me not to go to this U2 concert that I've just bought this ticket for? And I could figure that out. And then I could look at what is the day that the concert's going to occur? What is the probability that the weather will be below my benchmark? Right. Uh, and as long if am I willing to take that risk for this non-refundable hundred dollar ticket? And, and then it, having written down, if it's below 52 degrees, I'm not standing out there, right? Then you are actually more likely not to go, right? Okay, now, do so you need to write that down before you buy the ticket? Yes, you have to do it at the, before you enter into the decision. Right. Right, and that's true of anything, whether it's a project or whatever. This is, you know, on Everest, they have turnaround times, right? Like, which just say, if you haven't, if you're not to point A at this time, you got to go you got to turn around and go the other way. So there, there, these are things where you're just making the decision in advance um, that this is the way. And this doesn't have to be just like, I'm not going to go. It could be, uh, what are the circumstances under which I would continue? So like, for example, if you have a position, uh, you can say, what? Well, let me think, what, what are the things that would cause me to press? What are the things that would cause me to hold? What are the things that would cause me to actually take, take the position off or partially take it off? 
So um, these are all things that you can do in advance. So that's one way that you can solve for this. The other way you can solve for it is to get to the outside view, which is to say, find out what somebody else thinks without telling them what you think first, which is a little bit what we just did as an exercise, right? So this is one of the best. It does two things. It really helps to de-bias, but it also helps to reduce noise. When we say, let's all go write down what do we think the answer is and why, and we have some structure to the why, and this could be true whether it's a hiring rubric, right, where we're saying here are our values, this is what we're trying to hire for, let's all make a judgment about how good of a mentor is this person going to be, what is the quality of their coding, you know, how good of a culture fit are they, whatever, right, you just, everybody makes their subjective judgments, but it's structured in a way that we've decided in advance what the structure of that is, so now we're merging them. We decide in advance what the structure is, and then we all do it independently. And now all of a sudden you can get some of this really good debiasing. Now what that means is that you have to get to that second order knowledge. I know about the biases. I know it's bad. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I know that's sitting on top of that is that I can't undo it by sheer force of will or some sort of Jedi mind trick. So therefore I must set some things up in advance that will help me to do this. And I must put some structure to my choices. Now notice though, what's interesting is that all of that causes you to write stuff down, right? Automatically, you're keeping a record, whether it's the record of what we all thought about the necklace or the record of what my forecast was about when I would not go to the concert. Okay. All right, we're done. So, I solved everybody's problems. Yeah, that, that's right. No, it, I mean, Except for the fact that you don't like you too, but we'll take that yeah. offline. Brian is still you know reeling just, from that. To, to, I'm to with Brian. Fair, I love you too, man. I know. I, you know what? I, I just, I'm not a stadium rock person. That's all. It's like, it's not, I, they're, they're great as far as stadium rock goes. Like if I were listening to stadium rock, they would be who I would listen to. But I'm just not a stadium rock person. When I was in high school, I just listened to the Grateful Dead all the time. I was like, just going to say you're a deadhead for sure. I, yeah, yeah. I, see you I in was like a, in Barnes. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I don't really listen to the Dead anymore, except for nostalgia. But you can see how the Dead transforms into Jack White as a more edgy and and you know adult version of that. So I'm tracking. There you I'm go. tracking that. Fair. Um, <laughs> so you just sort of described a set of tools that that help to manage through the sunk cost fallacy and well through, it's there, actually through a lot of things it helps with it's going to help you with overconfidence it's going to help you with availability bias it's going to force you to go look up base rates it's going to like it's kind perfect. of all in one that was my question right so so there's think. right that's a that's a generalizable toolkit that you can bring to bear against a lot of different biases Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, one of the best, one of the best sort of principles being, you know, I mean, this is this idea of like, let's get our, our feedback independently, is that groups stink. We think groups are great for debiasing because we think, oh, we're getting other people's opinions. But mostly if you talk in groups, you're just making bias worse. So they're horrible. Mm -hmm. They're all sorts of like we talked before about, you know, the anchoring and things that come out of that, right? So, so it's just like, get to the outside view. I mean, that's the thing that you need to do. You need to hear what other people have to say, even if it's a past version of you or you on different days of the week, right? Like we have to get out of the perspective of the moment as, as Kahneman said to me, and I think it's such a great statement, find someone who loves you, but doesn't care about your feelings. What does that mean? Find someone who really wants you to have a good outcome, 
but isn't worried that you're going to be sad because they told you, I see it a different way, or um, I don't think it was $139. And I'm you willing as to the tell recipient, you so. You as the recipient have to be willing to hear that, though. Well, of course. That's why he's saying find someone who will do that for you. Well, and yourself, you have to listen to that someone. You have to be. Yeah. You. yeah. Now, now, I do have a trick that's separate. from Now, obviously, if you can find someone who do that, that's great. But I have a trick for people who don't want to hear it from you. And, and you actually would like to, them to still be your friends. <laughs> is one of the things that, that I'll do is with people's, I'll just sort of shift it to the future. So the thing that people are defensive about are things that they've done in the past, you know, particularly when they've acted on certain beliefs or whatever. So, so when somebody's sitting, like I, I have a funny example in how to decide where someone's talking about like, oh, the last 10 people I went on a date with are such jerks, right? <laughs> and of course, every single person who's ever been in that conversation is like, maybe you pick really badly, or perhaps you're a jerk. I like, <laughs> really, you hit 10 in a row who were jerks? <laughs> like, first of all, Maybe you think that things are jerky that aren't. Maybe you're too sensitive. Maybe you're whatever. Like you, we all have that. Nobody actually thinks. The point they is, it's you. It's not them, right? Right. But we all. We. What do we all do? Oh man. Right, because they're like your friend. Yeah. So okay. So the trick is instead of now, Kahneman's friend would say, "Are you kidding me? They're not. Let's be honest here, Danny. Yeah. They weren't ten jerks in a row." Right. Okay. But that's when you've invited that in. But what happens when you haven't? You just say, that's horrible. I'm so sad that you dated all those jerks. So like when you go out on your next date and you're going to pick somebody to go on a date with, what do you think you could do that would make them make it less likely that they'll be a jerk? Now, notice that in order for them to actually properly answer that question, they have to go back and think about, well, what was my behavior on the date? How did I pick? You know, was I just like swiping right on, on Tinder? Is it right or left? I don't know. Whichever way you swipe on Tinder. Not touching um, that one. Stop virtue used... signaling, honestly. <laughs> no, I've actually never used Tinder. Virtue... The fact that I haven't used Tinder is actually just tells people how old I am, sadly. Uh... <laughs> um, it's not for, I'm sure if I were a young I'm kid, just kidding, I would Annie, totally for be using Tinder. But luckily yeah, yeah. I am married and don't need it. But anyway, so whichever way you swipe, that's like the the good swiping thing or whatever. If it's like, oh, I was just swiping right on people who were showing pictures of themselves in the gym. (laughs) Like, right. Maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. Um, Nothing against people who spend all their time in gyms, by the way, and put pictures of Tinder on Tinder of them doing gym things. I'm sure you're lovely. Um, So, (laughs) While listening to you too. I mean, yes. listening to you too. Blasting stadium rock. <laughs> right. Blasting stadium rock. Exactly. Oiled up. They yeah. roiled themselves up. Um, but anyway, um, but the point is they have to go think about those things. So instead of you just saying like, maybe you've been really picking badly, you just say, what are you going to do the next time to make it, to make it less likely to happen? And that, that then they circle back on their own and, and their hackles don't get up in the same way. And they can usually hear you a little bit better. That makes a lot of sense, actually. And and I Rick Haynes is on the comments and he's asked a couple of questions that makes me think that he really wants to get to the bottom of this thing. So the first question the bottom was of the, what? Why I don't like gym shots with Yeah, no, it's it's <laughs> No, no, it's much worse than that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he says, I want to go to a concert Monday. I looked at the forecast. The probability of rain is sixty percent. What do I do? I paid $100 and it's not refundable. 
Well, wait. So can can you make the decision on Monday? That's the question. I mean, in this exactly, like it's got to be made. You've got to have the criteria set before you buy the ticket. Is the point right? Well, first of all, you you have to have the criteria set before you buy the ticket. But in this particular case, let's say that you're thinking about Monday. Today's Friday. Um, if you have to travel to go do it, right, it would have been good if you would decide that beforehand. But if you can decide on Monday, you can actually set the criteria today. That's the good news is that you basically can do this. You can sort of get that advanced planning. Anytime you're thinking into the future, you're better. So you can say, well, I'm looking in the probability rate is 60%. I'm going to be prepared that there's a, there's some chance that I might not go, particularly because I would go in some rain. Like if it's sprinkling, I don't care. If it's driving rain, I may care. So let me actually sit down on Friday and say, what what would the rain have to look like at that moment, right? And you have to set a time, right? Because I have to leave at a certain time. So if at three o'clock, this is what it looks like, then I will not go. So this is this is actually an interesting little trick because you can kind of think about the one insight that's true from the sunk cost problem is that we do want to think about the decision as new. It's just that if we're actually deciding in the moment, we can't do it. But what we can do is say, well, now I'm going to sort of start like a new chapter and I'm going to make some, I'm going to set the benchmark for some later date, which by the way, secretly, none of us ever think will actually happen. Right. Because I'm like, you know, how is it June 11th, right? Like, it, it, whoa. So we just, we're very surprised that the future actually occurs. So this is something actually that, um, I was told uh, by uh, Ron Conway, he's the founder of um, SV Angel. He said when he's working with, um, you know, uh, founders who are reluctant to shut something down, like he, you're never going to convince somebody in that moment that they can't turn it around, right? Because they're all going to tell you, no, but Angry Birds was Rovio's 51st game, you know, and I know we can do this. So, so he recognizes that and he says, look, you know, they didn't set out the criteria when they started fine. But now today, I'm not going to try to get them to shut it down today. What I'm going to say is, okay, I agree with you. Like you're totally going to kill it from here on out. Let's see what, what, you know, what is your, your growth in ARR have to look like by let's pick a date, right? How many customers do you have to have acquired? Let's pick a date. So what that does is it it allows you to get the same thing. I mean, obviously you're going to delay it because if you're at negative expectancy, you'd prefer to shut it down that day. But given that you can't, what's the worst mistake, right? Okay, I'm not going to get you to shut it down today. Let's pick a date and say, what What do you have to have achieved by this date? And if you haven't achieved that, then let's agree that then it's time to do it. So that's basically what you're doing in this case, right? You haven't set out, here are what my criteria are at, before I buy the ticket for doing this. But now it's Friday, I'm looking, I see on Monday, it's going to be raining. Let me actually set the criteria now because I know I'll be more rational today than I will be on Monday. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I want to make sure that we we also touch on your experience working with people in the investment business, right? And I know you've actually consulted for a, a variety of you know big name, uh, highly successful hedge funds and top investment firms. And so I'm just wondering, um, you know, what sort of patterns you've observed? Like do some types of organizations kind of load heavily on certain types of decision pitfalls or do the most successful types of organizations have certain decision making processes or structures or characteristics that really um, stack 
success in their favor? Like any, any broad strokes that you can kind of paint a picture for, for people who are trying to make decisions in these organizations? Well, so I, I, it depends on kind of, obviously there's a lot of different types of finance. So let me just give you some, some stuff. Um, there's a lot of errors that people in high frequency trading, sort of options trading make, but the thing that they don't make the mistake of is try, trying to really model the data. And there's obvious reasons why that is. The data is incredibly abundant. And, um, and you know, it's obviously very, it's like you're getting the feedback right away. So you, you have a super tight and closed feedback loop and a, and a lot of motivation, particularly because the margins are so small um, that it's just harder to fool yourself into know, thinking you know something that you don't know. That being said, uh, those organizations do still tend to make a, a lot of errors. They they um, still get stuck in their theses, and we've seen, you know, obviously we've seen recent examples of that. Um, they 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 won't, uh, you know, they don't adjust their model according to the to changes in the world fast enough. Uh, they don't think about their exits in the same way that they think about their entries, and that's obviously a feedback issue. You you naturally track all of your entries. Uh, in a way that you don't track your exit. So so those are common problems in that area. Um, in long short, uh, on, a, on a smaller scale, but still on the same scale as in venture, what I find is really interesting is that I would say that the biggest error that, that people make there is saying the feedback loops are long, so therefore I, there's no reason to forecast anything because I'm not going to find out for a really long time. It, and, and it's, you know, it's like as if, if I'm not getting the feedback in two seconds, that what's the point of doing the forecast and, and writing these things down. And I mean, there's a couple of problems with that. The first thing is that a lot of times when I get brought in, it's because they're trying to answer questions where I say to them, well, well, show me, show me the reasons that you made these decisions. And they're like, well, we don't have that. We didn't record it. And, I, and I'm like, why not? And it's this. Well, why should I record something if I'm not going to know the answer for five years? And it's like, well, because five years late, it's sort of, it's, oh my God, it's June 11th, right? Because five years later, you may actually want to know the answer to what was my thesis at the time. And so it would have been good to record that stuff. But separate and apart from that, it's just an error in the way that you're thinking about the world. Because nobody has ever made an investment, even if it's not going to resolve for five years or even a year, where that investment didn't rely on a prediction about intermediate states of the world in between the moment that you invest and the moment that you exit. It's not like you invest and then the world stops for five years. Right. I mean, so simply put, like, let's say that let's say I'm making an investment in, in a particular software company that's leading edge. I'm clearly making projections about what the user appetite is going to be or their ability to execute or, you know, how much, the world is going to be looking for productivity software or whatever it is. There's all sorts of stuff that, that I'm predicting in the simplest sense. If I invest in a company at series A, I am most certainly predicting that it will fund at series B. Even though the ultimate exit doesn't occur forever, right? That is clearly included in my, in my forecast. And we just don't take the time to figure out what are those things that would allow us to have those faster, faster feedback loops so that our life looked more like an options trader or frankly, a poker player. And it's because we're, you know, I, first of all, I think the work is hard and people don't really want to do it. And so you're just coming up with these rationales for, well, I don't need to do this because the thing I'm predicting is too far away. So 
you know, and I think I get into these interesting conversations. So like on the, should you write down your forecast of series B, what, what the initial reaction that I'll get generally is something to the effect of, but I'm not, I'm not investing them because I think they're going to fund at series B. So why should I forecast that? That's not why, that's not what I'm trying to achieve here. And so what I say to them is, oh, that's interesting. So have you ever had a successful exit where the company didn't fund at series B? And they say, no. And I said, well, then you're forecasting that. So, so I think that the, the real hard work across any type of finance is to say, I have to have the discipline and not trust the world to discipline me in the way that it would in options trading, where the world is just disciplining me to make much more explicit the implicit assumptions in, in my choices, right? Because I just have to. But treat everything like that. And say, there are things that are implicit in every single decision that I've ever made. I am better off making those explicit, writing them down, working with other people in independent settings, and then coming together and discussing them as a group, saying, here is my thesis. For my thesis to be true, here are the things that must develop in the world. These are the states of the world that, that would mean that I am right, or right enough to make money, because we're never 100% right. And if these things changed in the world, that would mean that I need to change also, right? Like, and we're just not doing enough of that. And frankly, I, I honestly, and this is no aspersion because I'm this way too, it's because we're just all cognitively lazy in the same way that evolution in general is just lazy. We're all just sort of energy, you know, hogs. We don't, we don't want to expend any energy. We want to conserve it all. And this takes energy. And even in organizations that I've worked a long time with, where we have very, very structured decision processes, occasionally there'll be some insane decision that's made on Slack, where I'll just come in and be like, what happened? You just had a Slack conversation? Like, you, there's a thing over here we're supposed to do. You know, and they're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's hitting a little close to home, yeah, Annie. So uh, yeah. maybe, <laughs> maybe we could yeah, Annie, tread lightly. Preach. Uh, preach. <laughs> <laughs> Preach, girlfriend. I apologize. No, 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 no. This that's great. Me that's too. Well I, I do this too, right? It's like, I mean, this, uh, you know, you have an organization and you have a very structured decision process. And then someone just says in a meeting, hey, what are we going to do about remote work? And all of a sudden you have an in-person group discussion about something that's incredibly important to your organization because no, nobody, like it just starts and nobody says, hold on a second, let's all be quiet. Let's figure out what we need to know. What, what's the information we need to have? What opinions do we need to elicit? What functions do we need to go talk to the leadership of? You know, what, what, is the, what are the subjective judgments that we're looking for? You're like, no, people don't like to, it's just hard. Well, I think it also, you know, touches on the importance of culture. I mean, not to add another level of meta, but it's like meta, meta cognition. Like there needs to be kind of a cultural commitment to even engaging in these conversations, oh, oh. which are, you know, and we've, Anna, we've talked about this for, it's, it's exhausting to go through these exercises. Like think about every writing down conditions for, you know, how you're going to approach decisions in a week or a year. Like you, you most, nobody's going to end up doing that. So you need a culture that's committed to that. There needs to be not just an individual, but, you know, sort of a, yeah. a, a way of doing things. And then you boil down to, okay, we need to make decisions about these sorts of decisions. And then you need to make the decisions. The, um, the irony is that- There's never been like, it's rare. I can count on one hand, the number of times that an organization has hired me where everything is going just fine. <laughs> right? 
So it's always, I, I've had people talk to me when things are going fine and then be like, oh, that's really interesting. I totally think we should do that. And then I don't hear from them. And nine months later, they're like, our world fell apart. Come, come help us. Because you don't really see what the cracks are until the world tells you that there are really big cracks. And then you go, oh, no, things fell apart. Right. Because it is it, these are things that take intention. Um, and I think that unless we're told that we need that intention in some way that's really serious and, you know, very often an existential threat, then we don't necessarily go and, and take the time to do it. I will say, just kind of going back to what Brian said, I just want to be clear that there are lots of decisions that you can make super fast. And in fact, I would say one of the mistakes that I see is that they'll spend that people will spend a lot of time on decisions that they should be making quite fast and essentially no time on decisions that they should be making quite slowly. So how how do you well, identify you Yeah, how do, how do you identify in advance the ones that we should be making quickly versus the ones that should be more deliberate? All right, so I'll give you I'll give you the framework. It's just options and impact. So, uh, and obviously option, they're related to each other because optionality reduces the impact of, of, of realizing the downside, right? But it, if you take impact, it's like, okay, what if this goes poorly, how much do I care in the long run, right? So it's interesting, like people really worry about like, should I buy this one stock? And it's like, if that stock goes down, you don't care much in the long run, assuming it's in a well-constructed portfolio, right? So it's like, once you kind of are like, well, this is what I want the construction of my portfolio to be, and these are the sectors that I want to be in, and this is sort of how risky I want the stock to be. Once you've sort of done that, just like choose among a bunch of them. Like don't spend a whole lot of time like worrying about A versus B once it's already past the threshold, because it's not that one stock isn't going to affect you very much. The construction of your portfolio really matters. But the one stock probably doesn't. What you order for dinner. Like, <laughs> I mean, we know those people who are like, pick me last. <laughs> What are you having? What are you having? What are you having? But 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 this is the idea of like a minimum viable product, right? It's like release it to a handful of customers, something that's really stripped down. If the customer, if it messes up, you don't care because only five people got affected. So just do it fast. Don't try to make it perfect and put it out there and see what the world tells you. And that's going to speed up the whole process, right? So So that's that impact side of things. And then there's optionality, which is which we know, like the more liquid the investment, the less work you have to do on it. If you're going to tie your money up for 10 years, you ought to really think about it, particularly if it's a lot of money, which has to do with impact. But, it, you know, if you can move in and out of the investment, assuming that you'll actually do so, right, that you have your kill criteria set up in advance, um, then then you don't have to, you know, you just have more room for error then and you can go a little bit faster. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a disciplined decision process. It just means that it doesn't, you don't need to do as much in order to do it if you can hedge, right? Like the more hedgeable something is, the faster that you can decide because you're just protecting yourself against it, not getting it quite right, right? So, so like, I mean, a, a silly example would be if I'm climbing a mountain and I have ropes, I can go a lot faster and not worry as specifically or as much about the handhold that I'm about to grab to, because if I fall, I've got ropes. But if I'm free climbing, like now I've, I've got to map that route out and I've got to practice a lot more and I have to do a whole bunch of other stuff because if I slip, I'm dead. So, you know, example. the ropes are just a hedge. So, mm -hmm. so the more that you can hedge, you know, you don't, you don't have to go quite as fast. And, and we can actually take that into like a hiring thing, right? Like 
you shouldn't spend a whole lot of time trying to hire your interns, or your entry level people. You have a lot of them. So you have a portfolio. You just have to construct the portfolio. Well, it's very, very quittable. Right. I mean, th those people, it's very little organization or cultural damage for you to let somebody go. Who's that? Who's at that level in the organization? So, you know, you can just throw a bunch of spaghetti against the wall there. I mean, you want to have standards, obviously, and thresholds, but those thresholds can be a lot lower and you don't need to take as much time in the recruiting process and so on and so forth. But man, if you hire a CFO, you better take some time because there is a lot of damage to hiring somebody and then, and then letting them go from that position. If that doesn't work out, it's got a much deeper impact, much more long-term impact on your organization. And it's harder to hedge against that you can't hire two CFOs in case one of them doesn't work out, right? And it's not nearly as liquid. You can fire them, but it's at a much greater cost. So once we sort of understand that, we can get out of this 15 minutes of worrying about what we're going to order off a menu, right? And and we, we ought to stop saying, you know, because I've seen this in organizations, right? Like they, they meet someone and hire them without a process because they're like, no, I had lunch with them. They were great. You know, and it's like, really, you're hiring someone that's a C-level because you had lunch with them and you think they were great. But they're like, no, I can read people well. It's like, all right. That's fine. That's fine for an intern. My, I met my friend's kid. They seem fine. Let's bring them in. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then um, have, have the stop loss, which is the, you know, they're in the probationary period. They didn't work out. Right. Exactly. Which is so why you stop hire your friend's kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I, I do have, in your new work and the work you've done, I'm, I'm fascinated by how you think about and construct the experiments that lead to the uncovering of the, the various um, biases and opportunities for improvement. And I know that the sort of the new work is, is, is quite, is, is more rare. And I'm, I'm wondering if, can you help enlighten us on how you think about those things? How do you, sure. how do you construct a, an experiment that's like going to have a revelation? Design? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I can give you a couple, a, an example. So, you know, in thinking about the work that I do on forecasting where we're asking people to forecast, you know, wind probabilities and, you know, certain <clears throat> outcomes and we're using simulated environments so that we know what the answer is. Cause we can just run Monte Carlos, but um, it's basically looking at when, when you look at what good forecasting is, what, what are the skills that you need? And it's, you know, what's the outside view? Well, you need the base rate, right? You need to, if you, to be a good predictor, you have to actually be able to sort through patterns. So how could we train people on that? How do we help people understand when reversion to the mean is going to happen and when it's not? So like, as an example, right, if, uh, if there's an accident on um, a highway at two in the morning, that causes it to go down to one lane, uh, it's probably not going to affect things too much. So, but what I need to understand, is that going to be cleared by rush hour or not? Because if it's going to be cleared by rush hour, then I assume we're going to just revert to the mean and at rush hour traffic is going to look like it always does. But if it's not going to get cleared, then I have to assume that, that that's actually, I have to change my forecast away from the base rates, right? For what traffic looks like at that time. So how, how do we think about how we would train people up on those kinds of questions. And so we create training around, we basically try stuff out and we say, can we create a module that's on base rates that gets people to really understand what these are and that you're supposed to anchor there? 
Can we create a model that's about, you know, a module that's about pattern recognition? And then basically you have people who get that training and people who don't. And then you have them forecast the exact same environment. In this particular case, like a simulated game. And you say, what's the effect? Uh, and it turns out we happen to have come up with a training environment that has a very big effect. Now, you know, I, I'm basically, when I think about, you know, what are my instincts for creating the materials and the, and the training that we're trying to test, it's coming from my work with organizations, right? Like I have just, and my work in poker, honestly, it's like I have just had so many reps of trying to figure out like what actually moves somebody to make a better decision? What are the things that you can tell them? How do they, what are the examples that they understand? What are, how, what are the analogies that they can transport across different domains? And these things are, are hard because one of the things that we know is that transfer of training is quite hard to achieve, right? So I've just been doing a lot of it. Um, and then I just take those ideas and I test them in a laboratory environment. And then sometimes it turns out that my instincts are right. And sometimes it turns out that they're not. And that's the whole fun part is, oh, this thing that I thought would work great didn't work at all, right? So like one of the things that I just found out is that no matter how much you train people that you should care about the base rates, when you give them a weird outcome, they don't care about the base rates at all. So if I tell you that when Brian and Annie play poker, uh, Brian usually wins $5 an hour from Annie. And I say, that's what's how they played a hundred times over a thousand hours, right? 10 hour sessions. And that's what's happened. And then I show you a game where Annie won $20 an hour from Brian. And I say, what's going to happen in the next time they play? Nobody says Brian's going to win $5 <laughs> and you can tell them about base rates and you can train them on it. And it's just very, very hard to get them away from that. So that's actually a problem that I'm working on right now. I'll let you know the results in a week, um, which is what, what can you do if it's not just about pounding home the base rates that can get them to stop doing that. And it's, you know, this is what I find out. And I thought that would work. Well, I thought, Oh, well, they'll be immune to that problem. And it's like, no, that is of enormous economic consequence in the investment industry. And I'm sure in every industry, but I mean, that's, we work in the investment industry and we see yep. over and over again, Brian, you know, you, you worked for many years in, in manager research. So I'm sure you can sort of speak to the, the recency effect and, and just how much attention people pay to recent performance versus sort of oh my the gosh, long term. Right? And we all know that like even long term performance has very, very low signal. I'm just, I'm and actually short, wondering and short term you... and short term might even be a counter signal. Yeah. I mean, how about yeah, this? Yeah, how, yeah, like, sure. You know, if you just leave your money and you don't talk, you don't touch it. You like, look at what happened. All the people who panicked in 2008, they got really messed up, but the ones who didn't, they did really well. And then it's like March of 2020. And you're trying to tell people that. And they're like, no, I'm selling. <laughs> and you're like, no, but look, this is here historically. This is different. Have you done any experiments with um, financial data? Not yet, but maybe I will. So. It just seems like a really interesting um, sandbox for decision making. It's so clearly, there's so much data available yeah, and so, it's such a noisy So some process. people have, there, there are definitely people who have, Alex Imus is someone who I, I really recommend people uh, go look at. He did a thing on dynamic um, trading. 
And he's found some interesting stuff. But, you know, one of the very classic things that people find in trading data is that uh, retail investors. So this is just simple prospect theory, uh, which is just people let their losers ride and they cash out of their winners like super fast to lock in the gains. Um, and you can look across retail investors in large, large bodies of financial data. And what you will find is that retail investors blow through their stop losses and they never actually make it to the take gain. <laughs> they do that well before they ever hit that. Um, so you, a lot of these things where, which are biases, which you can see in these sort of laboratory environments do actually have actually been replicated across financial data. I'm more, I'm more sort of interested in the, um, whether there's sort of a super forecasting, um, framework that, that has, that demonstrably works with financial data, right. Or like with manager selection or, you know, some other, um, decision-making process of, of extreme economic importance and, yeah. well, you'll you have know, to have Phil on. It happens all the time. You'll have to have Phil <laughs> yeah, on to, right. to talk about that. Um, <laughs> I will tell you this one thing that's kind of interesting is so one of the best ways to actually get really good forecasts is to put to create betting markets in your organization. So just essentially you have a betting market and, you know, people can put money on either side. So they've done this. Uh, there was, Eli Lilly did this for a while with research where the research scientists got to bet on what projects they thought were going to um, do great and which ones you know, obviously that also tells you which ones they're shorting. So they did that and it was a really predictive. It was much more predictive than than like the project manager's predictions or anything like that. Super, super highly predicted. And so they shut it down. Um, so you might be wondering why. <laughs> of course they did. Why? Right. That's the question. Why? No, but it's not just them. Like it. Ha I think it happened to Intel as well. Like basically anytime that someone's put this in. The answer is, it's amazing. <laughs> and then they shut it down. And the reason is that even though a betting market is human beings offering their opinion, when I'm a manager and you do that, I say, but what about my opinion? But my opinion's really good. I know stuff. That Why are you taking the decision-making away from me? Huh. Even though they're participating in that betting market. So there's something about that that makes people feel... Um, unseen and unheard and not valued and not useful and all sorts of stuff. And so they always end up getting shut down because they're culture breakers. Hmm. That's really interesting. Wow. Right. There, there is the potentiality yeah, that's incredible too, insight. For, that, for people to start, start gaming that potentially in their. It's hard to do. You know, it's like trying, it's like, look, we all know what's going to happen eventually to GameStop. It's like you can you could game it, but the market's going to end up eventually. Right. If, if you're trying Don't to worry, game, we're going to have the betting markets on the blockchain. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it can take a while, but eventually someone's going to get that get on the you know the right money's going to get on the right side of that bet. So, um, but no, they're they're highly accurate. It's just you can imagine. It's like, well, what am I here for? Like. What about yeah, that, my that, opinion? That, that, Shouldn't I be able to manage people? I I, I want to make a decision about what projects keep going. What do they Why call that, that ownership thing? of your decisions, right? Yeah. It ego. really, really matters to people. Yeah. yeah. I think it's separate from ego, actually. Like, there's a difference between feeling like ownership and agency that's mm -hmm. separate and apart, I think, from ego. But um, but at any rate, they don't work. 
So instead, what you want to do, and this is, you want to do this for everything, is like just sort of start to transport some of the things that a betting market gets you, right? Well, we've talked about those. What does a betting market have? Independence of point of view. So we talked about how to get that in there, right? Two, that people are expressing their opinion in a very precise way. That's what a price is. So we want to do that. Like if you, you know, so if I say to you, um, you know, uh, what do you, you, what, what is the quality of this person's mentorship abilities, right? You're not just free answering. It's on a scale of one to seven, right? And that now I can see in a very precise way what, what that is and then create some stakes to it. And the state, all the stakes do is create accountability, so the point is that when you're recording all of this information, whether it's a forecast or, or a subjective judgment or, or whatever it might be, that people look back at it, not in a way to point fingers and say, oh, you know, you're an idiot, but in a way to say, you're, look, your forecasts are slightly off. Let's figure out how can we make those more accurate. So, so the fact that people know that this stuff is recorded creates stakes because they understand there's now a record of it that someone might go back and look at. And then that also helps with the outside view separate and apart from the independence of opinion, because they're like, well, let me imagine when someone's looking at this later, how is this going to look for them? What do I think might be wrong in here? How am I going to get a good score on it? Which is all that a betting market is, is in the future, how am I going to get a good score on this opinion that I'm logging right now? Amazing. How do, how do you balance the, the outside view? with you know spectacular leaps in innovation nothing magic happens in the outside view that's always my challenge with the outside view there's no magic there like if you were to look at you know amazon the old example the valuation is such that they would have to deliver every package on the planet and thus they are overvalued uh, but then they come up with AWS, which changes the whole field and they continue to go higher. And that's that sort of magic that's not encountered. I, I suppose you can you have some sort of hypothesis about another view, but you want to be aware of what the realities of the outside view are in order to help inform that. Or how do you well, how do you, how do you that, capture the magic? Yeah, you know? so so that doesn't actually go again. This that's that part of that training that I was saying, which is you have to understand do I care about the base rates or is this likely to run away from the base rates? So it's that, is the accident going to get cleared before rush hour or not? Right. Right. So one of the things, this is why you want to make explicit what's right. What's implicit, because if you're going to say for this valuation to be true, like, and you can do a simple pre parade or backcast, right? Like let's imagine it's five years from now and Amazon looked cheap. Why, why was it cheap? And then when you have people do that independently, you start to see things like that, right? So, so as an example, you know, we all know that there was a big shift when we went to, to, you know, physical businesses that only have a certain amount to grow before competition crowds them out, you know, versus something like Google, which seems to, be, you know, this is where we get into power law. And so the question is, was that foreseeable? Well, it was certainly foreseeable by some people. Because they invested in Google, they, they, you know, at valuations that at the time would have seemed kind of crazy, but they, they, they could see the future because you have to say for this valuation to be right, what would have to be true? Well, this would have to be a space where you can just capture enough of the customers and have create enough friction for someone to switch that once they captured that value, they wouldn't, they wouldn't release it. Right. And that's not true of physical businesses. 
in the same way. But so, so you can actually end up seeing that. And that's the, the kind of art of forecasting is understanding what are the questions that I'm supposed to be asking? How am I thinking about what would be implicit in that outcome, uh, outcome occurring? Make it explicit, explore those explicit things. And then a lot of times you're still not going to see it, but you're going to be more likely to see it. So it's not that everything reverts to the base rates. That's not true. Sometimes there are changes like traffic in the road that isn't going to get cleared, right? Or an accident in the road where you just have to be able to see that. And you can imagine how that is. Like, so let me imagine it's rush hour and everything's backed up. Why did that happen? Well, a truck must have, you know, a semi must have turned over in the road and they couldn't get it out. Right. So, so you can start, you can start to kind of understand what are the assumptions that would have to go into that. And you can do that with Amazon as well, right? Like, for this to be right, what would have to happen? Well, could they do it off of just the packages? Well, no. So yeah. what else would have to happen? Right. And then you can start to forecast the probability of those things happening. How realistic are those things? And then you decide, maybe you decide the market's wrong and you short Amazon. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're just trying to be more accurate. You're not going to get perfectly accurate. The answers lie within the questions. That's very good. I like that. By the way, that sounds so wise. That was very good. It's Mike. I, I got to go he's, TM that full immediately. Of that. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I just um, tweeted that out. So, it's, I mean, it's just, mine. Yeah. the answer lies. <laughs> Under your... By the way, there's something called the illusion of explanatory depth. You should go look at it. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a really fancy way of saying, saying something very succinct. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Brian, did you tweet that out on your GS Elevator account? Or yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Andy, like just, just trying to summarize a little bit on the um okay. uh some some sort of really fundamental takeaways. Like it seems like okay. in terms of organizational decision making, um there's sort of a first step which is is this a quick decision or does it require some reflection? The mm. quick decision wait, is- Wait, let me just is, say, I, can I just have a step before that? Of course, please, yeah. Know what a really good decision process looks like. Because even when you make quick decisions, knowing what a really good decision process looks like will help you make better quick decisions. It's like a muscle that you do, you do and then you also understand what can I get away with not doing and what, so you ha that always has to be the start. But then, yes, now go to – so that would be like step zero. So now we're at step one. Is it a quick one or okay, a Okay, yeah. One? No, so, so fair enough. So there's this sort of – this this meta decision-making process at the beginning that sort of formulates how good decisions are made, right? And then I, I, step step one is kind of is this a quick or or a fast or slow decision, right? If it's and, and in order to determine that, you've got a model which is impact and optionality. Right? right. So you, there's sort of a rating system there. And then maybe the organization sets thresholds um, of some interaction between impact and optionality yes. above a certain threshold is something that we want. We want to spend more time on. Right. And then we when we and, want to spend more time on threshold, it. That threshold will be different for different types for different things. Right. So so like that threshold will be different depending on like, is it an intern or yes. <laughs> Okay, good. Yes. Threshold. Right, right. Okay. Oh, okay. Yes. So that's a, that's a good point. So who is involved in that decision, right? It seems like 
even though it it's fast, it could still be you could still ensemble several votes, right? Like you yeah. can have it might require several people's votes or input on this, right? You're gonna several people. Yeah, are gonna, it, are no, give it should their, always involve right. So you can literally just go, okay, everybody, take out a piece of paper, write your number down. Right. If that's all you do, right. you did better. Exactly. Okay, cool. And then like there's an average of those that above which now it moves into the more reflective decision making. And then it seems to me like there's a there's a Pareto law there too, where like 80% of, of decisions can be addressed coherently and systematically using a fairly limited number of different types of decision making yeah. schema. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can bring together different like grids or different like whatever. Like there's a limited, there's a finite number of schema. You decide on what schema is most appropriate for this problem that we've decided requires more reflection. We bring that to bear. We bring the necessary resources in to fill out that schema. It all is done independently so that there's no cross contamination at the team level. Then the results are sort of collated. What comes next? Because I see a real a potential. Question. Well, there's, I see it all the time in our organization where there's, we form independent opinions. It's not nearly as systematic or, or well-formed as what I'm describing, but, but let's assume it is. We bring different opinions to the table, but then there's discussion and the, the discussion contaminates the ability for us to use the information that was yes. derived independently. So Okay. Yes. Hmm. Okay. So first of all, you have to decide how is the decision going to be made? Because the people that you elicit feedback from are not necessarily the decision makers. So as an example, I just ran a process where everybody on the leadership team gave input, but everybody on the leadership team was not making the decision. So the discussion was among the leadership team, but then it went to a smaller group. Okay, so you have to decide, is this something that's like, it has to be unanimous consent, uh, mm. like in, a, in an investment partnership, it might be we do this if it's a majority, saying yes, um, could be one decision maker. So you have to decide that, decide that in advance. So that's separate and apart from the conversation. The reason why I say that is that people who are having the conversation need to understand that the goal of the conversation is not to make a decision in that conversation. It's not for everybody to agree and to, to actually make the decision right then. That's going to happen after what the goal of the conversation is, which is to inform. It's, it's to inform the whole group and inform whoever is eventually going to be weighing in on that decision. Even if it's like we're going to have the conversation, then people are going to vote. Right. The goal of that conversation is not to decide. It's to inform the vote that's about to happen. And you need to agree in advance on the decision policy. Right. So that everybody exactly. knows the objectives of each stage of the decision process. Exactly. Right? Okay. Okay. So okay. now what do we do? All right. So let's take a situation where um, I've said, what is, what, let's say, let's say we're just doing a simple hiring rubric. Let's make it really simple. And, um, we, we have this question about mentorship, which I've mentioned before, and it's on a scale of one to seven, how strong of a mentor do you think that this person will make? All right, so uh, everybody's filled that out uh, along with a whole, you can imagine a hiring rubric, a whole bunch of other opinions that you've 
elicited, subjective judgments. And now we bring that together into a sheet, like it could be a Google sheet, um, where I can see, you know, Brian, Mike, um, you know, so so on. We put this into a, 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 a spreadsheet and now I can see everybody's opinion. And for each question, I can see what number they gave. And now you can broadly do a couple things. One is you can say, here are the things that everybody has a lot of agreement on. This person's a very strong coder. Everybody's got five, sixes, and sevens. So everybody pretty much agrees on that. But here are places where we seem to have a lot of dispersion. Okay, so this would be like, for example, um, I, I just ran like a remote work process and like we saw this a lot. Like there was a question about uh, being in person improves productivity. And it was a huge spread between one and seven across people. So, it, but it was, it tended to be clumped. Some people were sort of like seven. Yes, I really agree with that. It, it improved. And some people were like two, it doesn't improve productivity. So here's how it will go. Let's take that question. So let's say Brian was a two. I, I, now you need very strong facilitation. I, and I would say, okay, here's all the places where everybody agrees and you acknowledge that. And now I'd say, Brian, can you just give your rationale for why you don't think, you don't agree that being in person improves productivity? And Brian would then give his rationale with no interruptions from anybody else. Um, and Brian's rationale would be there's too much tapping on the shoulder and people are trying to work and they can't get any blocks of time because they're always being pulled into meetings and whatever. So he gives that reason. Um, and then I say, uh, you know, Mike, you were sort of in the same zone. Why do you think what, you know, do you have anything to add to what Brian said? And you may or may not. Is there any, does anybody not understand anything from what Brian said? Um, and, you know, notice that that framing, it's not, do you disagree? It, is there something you didn't understand in there? Normally it's silent at that point because normally people pretty much understand. Then you say, Annie, you gave it a seven. You think it really improves productivity. Why do you think that? And then identify the people who, who are more on Annie's side and you explore that. And then you say, does anybody else have anything to add? And then you're done. There's no, okay, what do we think? Because the whole but it seems to me that is when that you've you got have a lot team. of dispersion in a category, it, you, it, it usually highlights that there's a there's a um, different people have defined that yeah. in very yeah. different yeah. ways, it right? Comes so, out in the rationale. Okay, okay, okay. That's exactly what comes out in the rationale. And sometimes what you'll find out is somebody will say, "Well, I was thinking about it not as if it's left unchecked." But the reason why I thought that it improves productivity is because I was thinking about managers managing that situation really well and keep, keeping people separate. So you actually find out that there's agreement, right? It's because people are allowed to give their rationale. It's not like they have a rating and then there's nothing behind that. You're saying, why do you believe what you do? And then the, a good facilitator will reflect that back. And it says, it seems to me that you're defining this differently. If I understand, can I ask you, Brian, I think you're defining it this way. Mike, I think you're defining it this way. Do I have that right? So all of this is coming out in the conversation. The key is I have no intention of Brian and Mike ever agreeing with each other because it's not the point. Why would you have a team if everybody ended up agreeing with each other? Who cares? So now we, we just, we, we find that out. Everybody hears what everybody else has to say. And then the then how whatever the decision process is will happen. And it you know maybe people vote now, right? Maybe there's one person who's making the decision, but now they've heard everybody's input. 
and you're exploring it in a way not meant to convince anybody of your point of view, which makes for a very bad discussion. <laughs> but it's meant for me to be able to convey why do I think the things that I do and for me to hear you convey the same. And it's just about me understanding. So it, exactly. It, like if there's a people are defining terms differently, that naturally comes out in that kind of conversation. So a I lot of what I whether, do, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just is it, is it worth at that, that point, point actually, actually breaking, breaking that, that one thing into two? Right. So well, it you was could productivity. That, so, yeah, but now so we're going to define it's, it's right. Okay. You could do that. And what you would do in that situation is, okay, I think we're talking about two different things. Can everybody just write down their rating for thing one and write down their rating for thing two? So you can do that spontaneously right. as long as people write it down. You just, you know, you just don't want people to discuss it before they've actually recorded how they think. So this happens all the time. Like I'll, I'll be discussing like a, an investment opportunity and somebody will say, well, I think if we get this logo, it's actually really going to increase the value of our funnel. And I'll be like, hold on a second. That was a big sentence. Stop. Can everybody just write down your estimate of how much this, how much this is going to increase the value of the funnel to have this logo. Right. And then, and then everybody will write it down independently. Right. So, so I do that all the time when you're sort of in that information discovery and then I just stop the process right then and make people write it down. I mean, this is fascinating yeah. that it, it touches on, I think, an increasingly popular topic in organizational decision making, which is cognitive diversity. Like, how, how do you bring people who think differently into an organization? And obviously, it's a bit orthogonal to traditional definitions of diversity, but it may be, and maybe because I'm obsessed with organizational organizational culture, it kind of goes back to the, how do you handle bringing in people who think differently slash can disagree without being disagreeable? My experience over my career is that that's really hard to execute. Yeah. So this creates a structure that allows that to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, I can it's tell you, this was one of the best sentences that was ever said to me. I, I was brought into an organization that was unhealthy. Um, I ran my first process that was similar to this. It was about a particular question and, you know, with a leadership team and we elicited all the feedback in advance and the, you know, I was new to the organization. So the re way I figured out what feedback to elicit was to ask them to send me what feedback they thought I should elicit. And I did that all independently and then combined that into themes and I elicited all of the opinions. And then we had a big uh, two meetings back to back um, on, on different days um, so that we could get through all of it. And I came in and I said, here are all the areas that everybody agrees. And that I spent literally two minutes on that. And then we went through question by question, all of the dispersion and we went through it all. So now I do a debrief later with someone who uh, was C-suite. And I said, I just would like feedback since that was the first time we ran the process. What do you think? And they said, I don't think we've ever had a, more helpful, like friendly, like no, you know, not non-defensive, like open-minded conversation in this organization. So I said, oh, that's interesting. So you know that the only thing we talked about was people disagreeing with each other, right? And they hadn't realized it. <laughs> and they were like, what? Oh, oh. 
I mean, it was really like that reaction where I said, because I spent two minutes on here's where you agree. And they said, oh, so open-minded and so cooperative and everybody seems so friendly and happy and nobody was mad and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, you know, we only talked about places that were where you totally disagree with each other. But that's what that kind of structure does because, it, you know, in some sense, you know, I think because of my games background, I just think about how can you change what the rules of the game are? And here the rules of the game are, you know, to be really good at conveying why you believe what you do and just that's it. The rules, of the, but the rules of a game and a naturally occurring meeting are to get people to believe that you're right and smart. And those are not the rules of this game. Yeah, that's a major shift in, in culture. Um, one of the things it also avoids is the issue of a lot of situations where um, you've got this asymmetry between a person's expertise or in you know insight and perspective that they bring to to a problem and their persuasiveness and or disagreeableness right um so often you've got a mix of people in a group and the person with the greatest amount of expertise or the greatest calibration for the problem have the lowest weight in terms of the, the, the group weighting, right. Yeah. In terms of their opinion, just because the qualities that they, um, that typically give, give weight to that weight are misaligned. I know this unequivocally. Right? I'm referring to something from this week. I know this unequivocally right now. Oh, right. Yeah. What experts say is it's nuanced. Right. They say it depends. You know, you can look at this from a variety of different ways. Uh, there's different ways that you can model it. Um, even if you model it this particular way, you know, it depends on what your risk attitude is. Here's what I think the lower bound is and the upper bound is. I can give you my point estimate, but I'm telling you, I've got a pretty wide band around that. Right. And everybody goes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you really think? Sadly, those really people think? never make it on and TV. Then, and yeah. then like Brian from sales says unequivocally. <laughs> unequivocally, I, you two is the best big stadium rock band. Unequivocally. Unequivocally. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, I mean, so this actually allows, th this actually sort of tamps down that problem. I mean, you know, there's this problem of just, you know, there's those three people who talk in every meeting, right? <laughs> so you never hear anybody else. Um, so this this makes it so that everybody talks. And, and a good facilitator is specifically going to make sure that every single person has spoken by the end of that meeting. Because you're looking through and you're seeing where the dispersion is and you're like, okay, for this first question, I'm going to call on so-and-so to start. Because there's always a leader of the pack. You know, like Brian's going to represent the high numbers here and Mike's going to represent the low numbers. Um, and then you're you're making sure that you're calling on everybody to do that. So it doesn't matter. So if implicit in this, or, there's a yeah. facilitator in every meeting. You have to. You cannot have a good group discussion without a facilitator. Let me just say that. Okay. And so is I mean, that, is that really really someone volunteer? You can't. By the way, if it's if it's a small enough group, I think if it's like three people, you probably can. But in a group of ten, mm. you it, it's very hard without a, somebody facilitating. And it's not that the facilitator couldn't have also been an opinion giver, but like someone's got to run that. Um, you know, one of the things that I've done just a spontaneous thing is like, uh, 
you know, you could have some sort of signal, like if you have a placard, you could turn it up and say, I have something to say. And at least that creates some order to it. But in that particular case, you wouldn't have elicited the opinions in advance. But once you've elicited the opinions in advance, someone has to be running it. Otherwise, it otherwise it just erupts into people interrupting each other. But there's something that's really interesting when you have a good facilitator is that people stop interrupting because they know they're going to get called on. They know they're going to be heard. So there's no reason to interrupt anymore because they understand like they're they're going to get to say the thing they say. They just have to wait a hot second. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, oh, let me just I say, had something don't, that I don't con- don't contact me for consulting right now on that capacity. And I will say no at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I just, well, you've I done such a great oh, job might, of demonstrating your value. Someone might call yeah. me for consulting. Right? No, really. And no offense. I would love to help you, but I, I'm just letting you know, I'm at, I, I'm at capacity <laughs> at the moment. I can't take on any new clients right now. Congratulations. <laughs> so we don't have like a, right. an ending question. Um, we could just add no, our, <laughs> our riffs. No, no, but, but we are unequivocally done. Exactly. You can reach out to me here, but I will not respond yeah. to you. <laughs> yeah. No, I will, I will actually respond, but the problem, I just, I, 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 you know, but by the way, that doesn't mean that you can't contact me to give a talk. Like I, I can't take a talk. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying like, I can't, I can't do any, I, I just don't have space in my schedule for, so contact me after December when I have turned in the manuscript of my next book. Then, <laughs> then, I, then I will have some capacity, but at the moment I have none. See, okay, here's so the what is, You know what I just did there? I just, I just did it in advance because I know, <laughs> because here's the deal. I have, when people call me, I have trouble saying no. So see, I'm saying in advance, please don't call me. No. I mean, except I'm nice happy hack. to give a talk. I'm happy to give a talk and I will respond to your email. I just won't, I can't. <laughs> or is it a classic takeaway close where it's the second or third derivative in the behavioral economic <laughs> continuum? That's she's, right. <laughs> guys, she's just playing poker with us. Yeah, I know. Really That's not. right. We're totally outmatched. I have yeah, exactly. scarcity. Not. Exactly. I'm really One, not. Like, tell I'm us about your new book, Annie. Yeah. Yeah. Give us a teaser on your new book. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about my new book. That's the secret. Mm. Mm. So, uh, so my new book is actually on the topic of quitting, otherwise known as loss cutting. Uh, and it's, it's essentially just, you know, the human beings just have a very strong tendency to over persist. Right. So, so, you know, I think we talk about, you know, uh, stick to it, you know, like just keep trying and you'll succeed. But, you know, the thing is that it's, it's more like people who succeeded stuck to it. It's not so much that sticking to it makes you succeed. And I think that we get those, that causal relationship a little bit wrong. It's a little bit more correlational. So the issue is like, I mean, it's a lot what we talked about with like the concert ticket. It's like once you enter into an endeavor, it is just very hard for us to extricate ourselves, particularly when things aren't, aren't going well and we feel like we're going to lose to it. Right. So. Um, it's a little bit different if you think you're going to win, but but when you think you're going to lose, it's very hard to get out of it. And we know this, right? It's hard to get out of bad relationships. It's it, everybody says oh, I should have fired that person a lot earlier because firing is a form of quitting. It's you quitting the employee. But you know, everybody says I did that too late. I hung up on too long. I should have left that job earlier. Why didn't you know? This is just a very common problem, and the the science on this is deep and broad about what are the forces that cause us to stick around too long. Um, 
And I just don't think that there's a whole lot that's been written about this. I mean, Adam Grant has this wonderful new book, Think Again, which is about changing your mind related. It's certainly adjacent to what I'm talking about. Um, Seth Godin has a book that just sort of lays out the problem called The Dip, um, which is, you know, like Seth's book are. It's about yeah, yeah. It's about this thick, but filled Wait with thin. Yeah, but but you know, it's just like every word's a gem. That's what he does. It's all like a it's like a protein high bar. density. Yeah, yeah, it's like a protein bar. Um, so I, you know, I'd really recommend people read that. But um, you know, so I'm just really thinking really deeply about loss cutting and how do you figure out like how do how do we become better quitters? Because I think that you know, for me, the secret to success is quitting. Why? Well, because you have to decide under uncertainty. So at the moment that you make any decision, you have limited information. And also, just so you know, the world changes separate and apart from that. So the whole thing is what allows us to make great decisions under uncertainty is that later on we get to change. You know, the market goes down in a way we didn't predict. We can do something about that. We can change course. Um, we get in a relationship and it turns out the person actually was a jerk. But we didn't know it at the time. Right? We can we can break up with them. But um, we tend not to respond to those signals very well. So that's that's really what the book is about. It's like how do we become how do we become amazing quitters? Because I think calling someone a quitter as a mean thing to say is silly. It's like people who are great at quitting are completely awesome. Yay isn't isn't that the new yeah. the new the new tech word of pivoting? Isn't that like See, it's a reframing? This is why this is why I'm writing this book. Because when we do talk about quitting and we try to say it in a nice way, we wrap it in euphemisms. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I pivoted. No, you didn't yeah. pivot. You quit. Why? Just Correct. say it. <laughs> you quitter. Somebody said that to me recently. They said, so what, what happened? Why did you pivot into poker from academics? I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't pivot. I quit. I quit academics and I became a poker player. It's okay. I wear it proudly. It was not a pivot. Yeah. You know, pivoting is like a little change of direction. It's like a very slight, it's not running off the court, which is what people say pivoting in business is. Right. So, um, and I think that the people who are, who are, you know, I think we should stop using euphemisms to describe it. It's quitting. There's nothing wrong with quitting. It's not a bad thing. And part of the reason why we won't quit is because we think it's a bad thing. Right. Oh, you have a, some kind of character flaw. Like, have you ever heard, like, if I said to you, you know, Adam, you're a quitter. Like, whoever said that is a nice thing. And what I'm saying is you are a flawed human being. And it's not true. Versus, no, you, versus you stuck to it. Like, right. You, oh, you, you perseverance. Like, resilience. You, resilience, all those things. It's like, look, the opposite of that is you're just stubborn and rigid. <laughs> Right. So, so the thing Thank is, you. on both sides of the equation, you need context, right? Is it bad if, you know, your child gets an entry level position and then the first time that the boss says something mean to them, they quit? Of course it is. Right. Because first of all, the boss probably didn't even say anything mean to them. They were probably just like, why didn't you get your project in on time? And they didn't say it in a way that was like coddling. So what? Right. Yes, that would be bad. So if you have that context in that particular case, quitting wouldn't be a good thing. But there's lots of circumstances under which it, you know, sticking with it is really, really bad. You know, like you're in a failing business, you ought to return the capital to the to the um, investors and you just grind it down until the last penny is gone. That why is that a good thing? I mean, you persevered. 
know? Yeah, I, think, I think the relationship context for me makes it very clear. You're in a bad relationship and you won't quit it. Right. Which by definition means you, you can't get into a good or new relationship. And so by quitting, you're actually optimizing potential future successes. That's right. By trimming what is not working. Like last time I checked, there's opportunity cost to everything. And, but the problem is our mental accounting is really strange, right? Because like, if I have an investment that I'm losing in, I won't quit it because I don't want to have failed, even though I could take those same dollars and put them into something else that might, might actually, actually make the money back. But we don't, our mental accounting doesn't square that. We don't think about the balance sheet as a whole. We think, I can't believe I lost all my money in that thing. And now I got to get it all back as opposed to, we'll put your money over here and you will actually get it all back. But because it wasn't in the same thing, it doesn't count. You know, so yeah, my experience is that the most experienced traders are the ones that have best internalized that view. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like you have to start thinking long-term. I mean, there's just this time horizon problem. There's a horizontal problem, which is you're not thinking across all opportunities that you have. So, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. exactly. If you stay in that relationship, uh, then you're not getting into a better one. You know, and that, that it's, it's just a problem. Anyway, it's my new, it's my new thing. I'm like on a, I'm on a mission now. I'm on a mission. <laughs> to have everybody quit. <laughs> I want everybody to quit. Like, I'm a quitter. <laughs> I'm awesome. I feel a hashtag coming it. on. Yes. Yep. I'm a quitter. Yeah. Well, that sounds like the perfect segue to, um, Quitting. <laughs> Quitting. <laughs> to put a yeah. pin in this, to put a pin in this conversation, which is uh, sneaking up on two hours, but uh, this has been just, just as good as I had hoped it would be. Um, Annie, just incredibly generous and insightful and um, engaging. Like just your energy is so contagious, and um, all the comments have been amazing. And so, thank you so much for your generosity and your time here. And um, can't wait to catch up in real life sometime, which I think yes. might happen for all of us again. Well, hopefully, hopefully we'll all be walking 28 miles again. That's yeah. all. Exactly. I also want to thank Brian for coming on and, yes. and uh, yeah, making Brian, the introduction. Thanks, and thank you so much for, for sitting with us for a couple of hours and adding to the conversation and jumping in with the wrong answer on me. So I wasn't alone. I appreciate that. Uh, that, that was good. Adam, you just take with you forever that you had the right answer. I knew Don't it was worry. 61. I, I, just, never, I didn't want to embarrass. I will never embarrass. raise that again. <laughs> That's good. That's why you need to do knowledge tracking, Brian. Yep. All right. So last thing, where can people find uh, Annie? Uh, where can people find you if they want to follow you in the social media areas and things like okay, that? Where, so, where can they see you? Good question. If you want to follow actually me, go to Twitter at Annie Duke. If you go anywhere else, it will not actually be me. I mean, not that it isn't like, you know what I mean? Like I don't, I, I'm not on my I, my LinkedIn. I think someone just posts some stuff on there occasionally. So don't don't ask me on LinkedIn because I won't talk to you because it's not me. But so go over to go over to Twitter. Twitter Twitter is where it's the actual me. Um, and then uh, you can go to my website AnnieDuke.com. Uh, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, and then you can also go to the Alliance for Decision Education. Yay! And that is a nonprofit that I co-founded. Brian has been deeply involved with it. Thank you, Brian. Um, awesome. and an incredible awesome. friend of the organization. It is awesome. Um, and we are trying to bring decision education to every child in K through 12 in uh, the world. 
world domination. Uh, in the same way that people get social emotional learning now or STEM um, has become a focus that, uh, you know, better decisions lead to better lives, which lead to a better society. And I say hashtag more decision education, less trigonometry. There you go. <laughs> Preach. Something I you can it. use in life. Yes, exactly. Can, 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 I, can I just like echo that and say, I think it's just the coolest organization and that what, uh, you know, uh, Joe, who runs the day-to-day, -day, is such a sharp guy and the content. I mean, I've got three teenage kids. We, 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 all, we, all, have, uh, we all have kids um, of varying ages and the content that is available to teach them to think a little bit more sharply about day-to-day -day problems, like you encounter it for three minutes and you're like, you wish that this was in their schools. So yeah. I think, you know, the Where vision can here is- find more about it? Yeah. Well, Just and, look at the Alliance for Decision Education and we've got a dot, lovely website. Dot org. Dot org, right. And um, so, yeah, it'll come right up. And we, we are very pleased to have a, just stellar people involved. Um, Phil Tetlock, Barb Mellers, Danny Kahneman, they're all on our advisory board. Um, uh, we just have, um, you know, incredible people on the board itself. And Gary, Gary Kasparov, right? Gary Kasparov, yeah. yep. Yes, he's, he's also on our advisory. Um, lots and lots of amazing researchers. Paul Slovic, um, He's he's associated with us, Barbara Tversky. Uh, Michael Mobison is on our advisory board. Ted um, Sides. Ted Sides. Brian has been incredible and amazing from just about the start from when we founded it. Um, and just super smart, passionate people who are helping us out here. So uh, we'd love for people to get in touch. What amazing. a stacked team and an amazing <laughs> initiative. Well, um, I mean, it's a big it's it's a it's a moonshot kind of thing. So we need moonshot kind of people. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've got Brian, Brian where, where can people find you? People can find me also on Twitter at Brian Portnoy. I also, uh, unlike Andy, I think I do tend to my own LinkedIn account, um, but I'm not there very much. Um, so yeah, at Brian Portnoy on Twitter. And then my company is Shaping Wealth. So just go to shapingwealth.com. Yay. Love it. Just so um, everyone knows, since this is a weekly broadcast, next week we've got Chris Schindler on, who um, will be talking about the anti-factor systematic strategies, particularly in commodities. And he has been, every time he's come on, he's been one of our absolutely most popular guests. It tends to be more technical and very investing focused. So tune in for that one. And over the next coming weeks, we've got Fred Pye and Matt Hogan and Dave Nadig coming on to talk about crypto and we've got um uh david fauchier on and again so it's there's lots of great stuff coming up so um tune in next week and through yeah. the summer and lastly make sure you like and share this was an epic episode to share epic. and comment on absolutely so on so please do that all right cue music thanks again guys bye Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again. And see you next time.